0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest in this episode is Tracy Rudler, the author of Queering the Enlightenment, Kinship and Gender in 18th Century French Literature. And the book came out as part of the Oxford University Studies in the Enlightenment series at Liverpool University Press in 2021.
1: Welcome, Tracy. Hey, thanks for having me.
0: I'm so delighted that you were able to speak with me today. I always ask authors what brought them to the study of France, French literature? So in your case, what's that What's that background story?
1: It's actually kind of a funny story. Um, I'm from Kansas, from Kansas City, so right in the middle of America. <laughs> and I was born in Kansas City, but I grew up in this little technically part of Kansas City, but it was really a little town, like a farm town. There were lots of farms and churches, and that was about it. Um, and so I never really felt like... I fit in there and I just really kind of wanted to get out of there. That was my main goal. And I also happened to really, really love Audrey Hepburn. I had this um, day when I was just doing an Audrey Hepburn movie festival at at home and I watched Sabrina (laughs) and it was just the story of this woman, Audrey Hepburn, she goes to Paris, and she just lives there. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever. So that was really when I kind of I was probably about 10 or 11. And I really fixated on France. That was what I wanted to do learn French, go to France. So I started going to the library and trying to teach myself French. And then I started taking classes as soon as I could. And it just really kind of spiraled out from there and developed into a real passion for me
0: that is a great story I've been doing this a really long time Tracy and I think this is the first Audrey Hepburn drop that I've had in these conversations so and of course it's like it's kind of surprising to me that that's the case because I saw that film when I was a kid and I mean she's wonderful right so yeah and working on this period like as you kind of moved on from that initial infatuation and fascination with France, how did you become a scholar of 18th century French literature?
1: Well, that really happened when I was doing my master's at the University of Kansas. And I was taking my master's exams, I really had no interest or a little interest, we'll say, in the 18th century up until that point. I'd taken it along with all of my other classes, but I was kind of more into modern fiction. But when I was taking my master's exams, I remember reading an article from Voltaire's Encyclopedia. And I honestly can't remember which one it was, but it might have been his article on religion. Mm. And I just remember reading that and being shocked by how pertinent it was to now, it really felt present to me. It felt like here's someone, here's this philosopher making this argument in whatever year he wrote that, you know, 300 years ago. And it feels like someone could be writing this now. So I really just became fascinated with that. And that's what drew me to the 18th century, to the Enlightenment. And I've got to say, the more I learn about this time period, the more I just love it. I'm fascinated by it.
0: So Tracy, the book, and I'm quoting you here from the introduction, analyzes obliquely the ailing state of patriarchy, largely through alternative systems that these authors that you look at from 18th century French literature propose to take its place. And it's really this fascinating set of readings that come together to look at this period following the death of Louis Fourteenth, a period that you refer to following other authors as a kind of liminal period. Let's just start with that context, especially the period of the 1730s and 40s. What can you tell us? You set the scene for us. What What's going on in France um, in this period?
1: Yeah, sure. So my argument is basically Louis Fourteenth dies. The Sun King, you know, he had worked so hard to really gain control of Everything in France, he created Versailles to be this space where all of the aristocrats would live under his watchful eye, and so he really set himself up as the supreme patriarch. So when he dies, though, there's not really a great patriarch to take over, and so you have his cousin, the Duke of Orleans, that that ends up taking over until Louis the Fifteenth will be old enough to 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 take over as king. So it's really this time period. And that's when the authors that I talk about were growing up. So they were kind of in their formative years in this time when the grip of the patriarch on the state was loosened. And so the Duke of Orleans, he sort of opened up laws about gambling, opened up laws about prostitution. And it was a really different kind of France at that time. Uh, until seven years later, when Louis XV takes over and sort of tries to rein things in um, to varying degrees of success. And I feel like we see in the fiction of these authors who they're writing a little bit later than that there. So that was um, up until 1715. They're writing more in the 1730s, 1720s and 30s. But I think that we can see in their fiction that they were really influenced by this time period when things were kind of called into question, the idea of the king being the state. And I think that these authors run with that and they play with that in really interesting ways.
0: So I guess I want to ask you about what makes writing about family in this period uh, so important. And then the second part of that question is like, how much is the French Revolution kind of looming in this book. So there's like Louis, like the bookends are like Louis, Big Daddy, and then, <laughs> you know, the revolution, you refer to one of my favorite, favorite books of all time, <laughs> Lynn Hunt on the family romance, of the French Revolution, mm-hmm. but like the crisis of of dad and the brothers and all that um, bad mother, all of those things of the French revolution. So yeah, can you just kind of situate A little bit for us, how you see your book as an intervention in relationship to this longer history of the bourgeois family and sentimentality.
1: I'll say that when I first started working on the 18th century, the revolution is really what drew me in, or sort of revolutions, I'll say. Mm -hmm. Uh, 18th century is such a revolutionary time period, and I really initially thought that that's what I would do. And the vision of family that I had going into this project initially was very similar to this that you're talking about, Um, this rise of the bourgeois family, the sort of tight-knit community of mother, father, children that live in a single home together, which is quite different from... The 17th century, when um, I had this vision of more expanded families. You know, families were Uh more, marriage was more contractual. You would live with, you know, your family, your servants, your extended family. Who knows how many people would live in one dwelling. And a lot of that 18th century bourgeois family is framed by Jean Jacques Rousseau. I mean, Uh we can't really get away from Jean Jacques Rousseau. And initially, this project. You know, like many first books, this was initially my sort of parts of it were my dissertation. And the initial idea I had was to write on orphans. And it was because of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I was reading Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Émile in a bus on my way to campus one day. <laughs> like you do. <laughs> yeah. And I just have my eureka moment. I thought, I want to work on orphans. And so my dissertation advisor, my committee, got so tired of hearing about orphans. But after <laughs> after many, many discussions, I realized that what I was really concerned about was community and building community. And again, I already said I didn't really fit in my community. I didn't really fit in my family. And so I had always been searching to find my family and find my community in in the way that it works in queer communities. And so I realized that that's actually what I wanted to focus on and that if I wanted to focus on that, I needed to go back before this idea of a heteronormative family unit really becomes concretized in the revolution. And so that's why I chose to go back to the 1730s and 40s because I think that that's really this time we're talking about liminal periods between Louis XIV and Louis XV or between Louis XIV and the revolution. But I think also in literature, it's this liminal period between the really fanciful literature of the 17th century and then this more sort of rational philosophical literature of the 18th century it kind of has the best of both worlds, I think.
0: I love that answer because when I ask the why France, French, francophone, whatever question, you know, it's a chance for people to tell us a little bit about their bio and their trajectory. But what you've just given us is like the deeper, <laughs> I mean, we're not going to, I'm not going to make you lie down on your sofa or whatever if you're not doing that. But, But, you know, that we all have maybe we don't all have. I certainly do. And a lot of people I know do that have these things that draw us to our subject matter that Mm -hmm. run a little deeper. Right. And so I I really appreciate you sharing that thing about your relationship to your own family and (laughs) somehow, you know, and maybe not the principal questions that you're, you're posing here in terms of literary studies and this Mm -hmm. historical period, but that, that that's part of the drive for you in kind of being drawn to this to subject matter, to these authors, to these to these texts. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, these authors and these texts. Um, you're looking at fiction in this period, and you're really interested in thinking about fiction and its sort of social and political implications. So, could you tell us a little bit about? the process of selecting, like, are the people you selected, the writers that you selected in this period, part of that canon of this era of the 18th century? How would you account for who's in the book?
1: Yeah, so the authors that I write about are pretty canonical authors. So most people who work in 18th century French literature will know who Marivaux is. They'll know Crébillon-Fils, they'll know Graffinier, They'll know all of these authors. But what I tried to do throughout the book is to kind of pair some of their better known works with maybe some of their lesser known works. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that drew me to these authors in particular were their engagements, I suppose, with politics. I've always been drawn to literature, philosophy, or critical theory, whatever you want to call it. And politics. And I wanted to bring those three nodes together in this book. And I Mm -hmm. think that going back to the 18th century, first of all, allows us to kind of do away with any differentiations between those categories, because they weren't so solidified as distinct disciplines at the time. But also, I really wanted to see what these authors of fiction were doing that was really pushing forward a, a radical kind of politics.
0: How much would you say, Tracy, are you engaging in this book with the authors, the texts, of course, and the readership? Like, how minoritarian, I guess, uh, (laughs) is this literature in this period? And then how much does the literature kind of reflect what people are thinking and talking about in the broader context of this moment in 18th century France?
1: I'm not too focused in this book on the readership, mm-hmm. um, other than the fact that some of the main readers were the authors themselves. They were all reading each other's work, and they yeah. were all sort of circulating each other's work. Um, and there's a moment, I think, in the introduction where I talk about the fact that aside from Voltaire and Montesquieu, who I talk about in the first chapter, who I do kind of separate from the other authors of the chapters opening up this possibility for a queering of of the literature of the Enlightenment, but not necessarily participating in it. But all of the other authors went to the same salons. They were uh, writing letters to each other. We have A treasure trove from Francoise de Graffigny. She wrote letters every day to everyone. And those have all been preserved by the Voltaire Foundation uh, and published. And so we can really see the interaction between these authors. So they are they are canonical authors. They are very well known, at least in their day, and even their more obscure titles would have been known to each other at least um, Mm -hmm. in the day. But I do think that we can see that there is this conversation happening between them that kind of spirals out. And yes, there are other authors doing these same things and maybe authors that we don't know as much about, but I kind of wanted to focus on these authors because they are the ones that we know the most about. Mm -hmm. And so they are the ones that were kind of leading these conversations and leading them into the 21st century. You know, they're the ones that we're still talking about today.
0: And I'm going to want to come back around to all of the implications of the work that you're doing in the book for the 21st century. You have already just you know raised the, the question that we really need to dig into, which is this idea of queering right, as a methodology, mm-hmm. as an approach to this period, and to this literature, and to this moment, but also set of ideas and uh, debates that we refer to kind of collectively as the Enlightenment, right? So mm-hmm. I guess I want to come into this question of queering by saying, like, you were somebody who was interested in the Enlightenment, and you noticed a space, I guess, for making a particular kind of intervention in the way that people interact with and read the literature of the Enlightenment. So can you say a little bit about that idea before we get into it in all of its depth and detail of coming at the Enlightenment from a different way in this book through this
1: notion of queering? Sure. Um, I'll start by saying when I finished the manuscript and I proposed this title, Queering the Enlightenment, I thought, for sure, that's taken. For sure, someone's already taken this title. And I was shocked to see that it that no one, that, that title was available to me. Because I feel like in other disciplines and other fields and other time periods, people are working a lot on queer studies, and now more so in the 18th century in the French and Francophone context. But Um, When I started writing this, when I finished the manuscript, that wasn't necessarily the case. There weren't Mm. a ton of people doing this sort of thing. I've always been really influenced by these uh, queer scholars, queer activists, um, queer authors, like Lee Edelman and Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, and thinking about how they're proposing that we read texts differently. And I thought, well, how can I read these texts that I'm analyzing differently? And so that's where I came up with the concept of, reading queerly, which I introduced in the introduction. And it's really paying attention to these breaks between the form of the literature that we're reading and the content itself. So a lot of the stories have frame narratives. They're introduced through frame narratives. So there will be either it's uh, the narrator, as an older person looking back and saying, I'm going to tell you about my life, but then interjecting. And so you have these two different temporal registers that are happening, or there will be another narrator who is telling a series of stories to other people who are telling stories. So there are all these different layers, or we're talking about theater where there are all these different elements that are taking place on the stage. And so I wanted to see where are the moments when those kind of come apart, because I could have done a book on queer literature specifically. But what I wanted to do was to see how these queer elements are coming out of this canonical fiction, because it seems that in the 17th century, and even before that, even in the going back to the Middle Ages, there's all this sort of queer energy that we can see in um plays like Ifis Yant, or fairy tales like Histoire de la Marquise Marquise de Bonville, where you have these queer characters who are just living very freely their queer lives. And then that kind of seems to disappear in the 18th century. And so I came up with this thought of reading queerly as a way to see where all of that utopian queer energy went, because it didn't disappear.
0: So as someone who doesn't do queer studies, I'm going to ask a -hmm. Doug question, like, when you say queer about the 18th Mm -hmm. century, how do you deal with the you know, what do you mean by queer? What do you mean queer people? What do you mean queer arrangements? Like How, what does that have to do with our contemporary ways that we use queer? And
1: Yeah. So there, there are queer characters. There is queer romance, queer eroticism in some of the stories that I talk about and some of them not really so much. Um, but queerness emerges differently and from different spaces According to different time periods, you know, queerness isn't just one thing. Right, and so this is one of the reasons that I kind of start, and a lot of the project really started with Michel Foucault. A lot of historians will cringe, but oh, uh, well, not me. <laughs>
0: that's good. Came to the right place, Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> Great,
1: but you know, in History of Sexuality, in the first volume, he talks about these two apparatuses: the apparatus of alliance and the apparatus of sexuality. And the apparatus of alliance is sort of the governing. I don't want to temporalize it because that's, I think, what a lot of people do. And I think that's a mistake. But The apparatus of alliance is a way of organizing sexuality and relations among people through a very contractual way, we'll say, for lack of a better word. It's um, marriages happen for reasons other than love. And this is how we keep the progression of uh, society going through. I don't want to say it's even a heteronormative. It's not necessarily heteronormative. It's just a very contractual way of thinking about family. And then he talks about this apparatus of sexuality that emerges in the 18th century and into the 19th century where sexuality and relationships come to be governed more by by sexuality itself by sort of penetrating bodies to observe to analyze to think through this is when we see the rise of psychoanalysis trying to like get to the bottom of what our identity is through sexuality mm-hmm. and one of the things that one of the big claims that he makes in that book is that we we do a disservice to ourselves if we think that we've become more enlightened in terms of sex because we've started like naming everything, and what he argues is that this sort of uh, sexuality, queer sexuality, be it queer sexuality, be it whatever kind of sexuality, has always circulated, and that it's when we start sort of taxonomizing it that it becomes policed. I mm-hmm. mean, that's what Foucault is all about—sort of how things become, how things get policed. Mm-hmm. Given that a lot of these methods of sort of taming bodies emerge in the 18th century, I really wanted to dive in and say, okay, what if we didn't? What if we looked at how that wasn't the case? Uh, And what if we looked really at the places where that apparatus of alliance that's still in full force in Mm -hmm. the 18th century, at least in the early 18th century, overlaps with the apparatus of sexuality Mm -hmm. uh, that's emerging at the time? Um, And that's why I talk about, too, that I think of of these works as having these utopian impulses to, Mm -hmm. like, think something different that we might not have expected, but that ultimately gets overwritten.
0: I wonder, Tracy, if we could talk about kinship and gender and the role that these debates and categories have, you know, played Mm -hmm. throughout the book. You describe at one point the project as sort of lying at the nexus of critical studies of kinship, and critical studies of the Enlightenment. So could you say a little bit more about how the book works at that intersection, like of the ways that people have looked at the study of kinship uh, critically, and also been kind of, especially in the last, I don't know, 10 10 years, 20 years, been re-examining and rethinking the Enlightenment from all kinds of places, not just the place Mm -hmm. of the family, but from the place of like empire and race. And how do you see the book Kind of intervening there?
1: So kinship, I feel like a lot of research had been done on the formation of the bourgeois family, on kinship and sentimental fiction. And I think that all of that is very important. And I engage with a lot of that literature in the book itself. On the flip side, we have scholars of libertine fiction mm-hmm. that look at kinship really differently. So for example, if we think about the way that the Marquis de Sade uses kinship, it's really as a structure to multiply the horrific things that you can do. He just sort of plays with that structure so that, you know, the person you're encountering is no longer just your your wife, but also your sister or your child. You know, he really overlaps these things and sort of manipulates the family in really different ways. And so I didn't really want to go in either of those paths, in part just because they've been so well done already. You know, mm-hmm. so there's like Michel Delon or Arafat Mudin, like they've done all these things really well. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to, and I say this in the introduction, I wanted to see those moments where sort of sentimental fiction and libertine fiction get mixed up. There are these scenes where you have very stereotypical sentimental hero kind of. Uh, characters that find themselves in situations where they're floating around in ways that you see in libertine fiction. Or, you know, you'll have characters that are biologically female, but they're taking on a male persona to um, just sort of explore different ideas. So that's, I suppose, how I saw my intervention into kinship. And then thinking about the Enlightenment, I also wanted to think about, as I said, we can't really think about Enlightenment and kinship without thinking about someone like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Mm -hmm. whose writings on motherhood, and he's not the only one, obviously, but Mm -hmm. he's the big one that I'm going to because everyone knows that name, really structured not only how the family is created, but also how how enlightenment is thought of, how the acquisition of knowledge uh, should happen. And those things, especially in that book that I was reading on the bus, Emile, come together so neatly when he has... So Emile, if you haven't read it, he uh, takes this child, m- basically makes the child into an orphan, takes him out to nature, and has him learn by engaging with nature and so it's really brings together this idea that ideas about kinship will emerge from ideas about how we engage with nature and how we learn and so i wanted to to really tease that out in this book one of the things that's always been most important to me has been thinking about enlightenment as this kind of living thing you know i don't want to think of it as a time period i don't want to think of it as a movement I think of it as something that is lasting, that has lasting implications. And I even with um, my colleague, Valentina Denzel at Michigan State, we came up with this project, The Legacies of the Enlightenment, Mm -hmm. and um, where we think through what are those lasting legacies of the Enlightenment that still haunt the way we think about things such as race, gender, ability, Mm Uh, climate today. So I don't think that this is just something, enlightenment is just something that happened that we can study as if it's done. I think we have to be consistently thinking about its continued implications.
0: Maybe we could zoom out a little bit to the just kind of structure of the whole book to get at some of the themes and issues we haven't touched on yet. So the book is divided into three parts. Um, the first part, Family Remains, that really focuses on that the notion of a patriarchy in decline that is maybe the most obviously connected to um, this historical context and the aftermath of the death of Louis the And um, you discuss authors Montesquieu and uh, Voltaire in, in that first part, the second part of the book, Prodigal Sons that really focuses on, well, there's maybe more sons than this, but ones who don't, either don't marry and or <laughs> don't have children um, and you're kind of looking at these narratives and these fictions to think about things that, you know, even somebody like me knows are important in the 18th century. <laughs> Ideas about men, masculinity in the public sphere. And of course, women are there in these narratives, but more as sort of more haunting the, the experiences and relationships of men and uh, creating different kinds of connections between men. And then a third part, uh, narrative spinsters that really looks at the role that unmarried women play in these discourses of the the modern family and the emergence of a, of a modern family. So maybe just as a way of getting at all that the book holds, you could tell us a little bit about that structure and how that kind of came about.
1: Yeah, the structure, you know, is one of the things that I kind of went back and forth quite a bit. I had that introduction. Chapter one was something that I added actually that that might have been the last chapter that I wrote. It was not a part of the dissertation. It w- had nothing to do with, with that initial version of the project. But I think the reason that I decided to add that is because I felt like I needed to say a little bit more about this patriarchy in decline. You know, I'm saying that all of these authors that I talk about, Graffigny, Marivaux, fils and Prévost, I'm saying that they're all political theorists, philosophers who are writing fiction. But I thought, what if we take two of the people who were really important political theorists in the 18th century and writing just before these these authors in the 1720s, as when both of those are all three of the the works by Voltaire and Montesquieu that I talk about, what happens to the family there? And that's kind of what leads to to these other other authors. The next two parts, I really went back and forth on whether I wanted to separate them out or not. But in the end, I felt that, um, you know, I, I say in the introduction, Susan Lancer in The Sexuality of History talks about the importance of thinking through gender when we're thinking through sexuality and thinking through the implications of gender and sexuality. And so ultimately, I decided that I felt that was an important thing to do to separate them out like that while acknowledging that it's not so easily separated today for sure, and also not in the 18th century. And I don't think we need to pretend like it was. So in the second chapter, of Prodigal Sons, I really did want to focus on how no- notions of masculinity are altered, but also just notions of reproduction. I guess that runs throughout. Sort of reproduction never happens really in these in any of the reproduction in the sense of biological reproduction doesn't happen in any of the stories that I talk about. No one, you know, gives birth or has children. Um, and so I wanted to see what does reproduction mean in that sense? And really what I ultimately found in all of these books that reproduction was more understood as sort of the reproduction of fun in some cases, the reproduction of intimacy in others, the reproduction of community in ways that's not shaped around uh, biological reproduction or heteronormative relationships, and so I think, yeah, that's what that's what I do throughout throughout each of the three parts.
0: I have kind of a another really naive question about reading, Tracy, which is like, mm-hmm. when you think about these as utopian fictions and these authors, some of them, and maybe all of them, um, you know, are very, mm, I want to use the word cheeky. <laughs> so does it matter how much they meant it? do you know what i'm getting at like yeah is the interrogation of patriarchy family you know reproduction all of these things how much do you think about it in the book as something that really points in the direction really (laughs) points in the direction of an interrogation of what are emerging as normative family um hetero other types of relationships and and how much is it like I'll use this upside-down world or this world in which things aren't right uh, vis-a-vis a bourgeois family um, or normative family relations to make a joke or to make another commentary. Like how do you how do you sort that out when you're doing this kind of work?
1: I mean, the short answer is that as a literary scholar, I'm I'm just concerned with what they wrote and not necessarily if they believed it or right. how they felt about right. it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the short answer. But I will say that I think with these four authors, again, um, I really almost never want to go into sort of autobiographical stuff about the authors themselves, mm-hmm. and I really resist that a lot. And I do that in chapter five, and I yeah. again, that's another place where I really was like, oh, do I want to, do I want to go into Graffini's history? But in that case, I did in part because I think her history shows us that even if some of these authors are being cheeky or just playing around or giving us all a wink or something, I think it's more than that. And I think that they're maybe using the conventions that were available to them uh, and playing with them in different ways. And the reason that Graffigny allows us to see that is because she wrote about it again she she wrote about it she wrote letters to these authors she wrote about these authors she was talking about what they were doing and for her especially we really see how writing is life writing is a lifeline writing is life for her i i don't know that a day went by that she didn't write something mm. And I think that's really kind of the same with all of these authors. And we can see that in the letters that they exchanged both with her and with others, that writing was a form of life and that they had these conventions that they could play with, whether that was a sort of sentimental novel or whether it was an oriental tale or whether it was a comedy um, or tragedy. There were these conventions that were very, I don't want to say set in stone, but were, they were very common at the time. And so if you wanted someone to read your literature, you kind of had to stay within those conventions. Although Graffini is one exception to that, you know, with Lettre d'une Peruvienne, she stayed within the convention of the epistolary sentimental novel but then there's no wedding at the end. And she was sharply criticized for that. So what did she do? She thought through it. She wrote another version and she said, no, I'm not going to marry her off at the end because that's completely beside the point of this whole story. Um, And so I think, especially with Graffini, we see that, but we see that with others that, yes, they're using these conventions of comedy or tragedy or libertine fiction, but what they're doing is really something different. And so whether we read it as a as a joke or as, you know, sort of some some sort of fluff, um, I don't think that's what it was for them.
0: Her role in the book is interesting to me. Like, I mean, we could have a whole other conversation about male and female authorship. And do you want to say anything about that? <laughs> like beyond what you've already said?
1: Yeah, I think you're, you're right. And it's funny because I have these two... Sections that are divided by gender, sort of mm-hmm. roughly, the prodigal sons and the narrative spinsters. Yeah. But one of those chapters is Maivo, who's a man. <laughs> so ultimately, there is only one author who identified as a woman very specifically yeah. um, in this book. And I think that. Maybe her gender is one of the reasons why we have her letters because, and as I start that chapter, the first letter that she ever wrote was to beg her father to get a divorce. And he said no. And she was in this really abusive relationship uh, with a man who was spending all of her money. And it was a really, really horrible situation for her. And so for her, writing was the way out. There's this moment in this Discourse on Happiness by Émilie du Châtelet, that it's not a part of this book. I've written about it elsewhere, but not here, where she, this is uh, Émilie du Châtelet, is a physician, philosopher, author in the 18th century. And she writes that writing is more important for women than it is for men, Mm -hmm. because men have all sorts of glory. They can be politicians. They can um, do sort of anything they want but all that women have is education and writing. And I think that we definitely see that with Grafini too. And she really does provide us like almost a manuscript of what was happening and the time through her letters, through her novels, um, she's just really fascinating. So I guess that's all that's what I have to say about mm-hmm. female
0: authorship. I thought that was really interesting because then it raises like the whole other question of like how patriarchy functions in like, Print culture or literary culture, and like in this period, right? Mm-hmm. And and I was really fascinated by that. Okay, I have this question about, um, you know, I guess it's a question about like innovation and national specificity. You characterize maybe it's in the introduction. I can't remember these authors as as some of the first to ask these questions and to 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 play in this way and to to ask questions about patriarchy and family and these normative relations, uh, including procreation. And I guess I wanted to ask you about that idea of these authors as beginning something and and how you think about what happens after them in literature and and more broadly in the history of the family, not necessarily getting sucked into a whole conversation about the revolution, but possibly. (laughs) And then, yeah, the national specificity of this, obviously the context of the wake of Louis XIV's reign um, is specific to France, but do you see this? Are you queering the French Enlightenment in a way that might <laughs> we might also say this kind of thing is going on in other literary sites? Um, is there is there something that makes this? kind of trend, I guess, or minor trend in <laughs> French literature in this period that doesn't exist, let's say, let's just say in the British or the German context for, you know, is this a phenomenon that we should understand as distinctly French? And do you do we want to understand these authors as the beginning of something that then kind of takes more and more of a hold over time in French literature or a wider literary field?
1: I'll start by saying, you know, I'm no expert in other literatures, mm-hmm. like <laughs> English, German, um, American. But I do think that what we see here is something that's kind of specifically French. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of engagement with with these authors and others at this time period. You know, if we think about the Republic of Letters, there's lots of knowledge being shared throughout Europe and at that time sort of the colonies but i think that the context for these authors is so specific we're talking about france at a time when they're trying to avoid what has been happening in england they're trying to avoid this sort of parliamentary government where you know the king is doesn't have much power or the queen doesn't have much power I do think that it has reverberations out beyond France, Mm -hmm. but given where it begins, given that it begins in this absolutist state or in the aftermath of this absolutist state, in this period where we're not quite to the revolution yet, but we're sort of beyond Louis XIV, that in one sense plays a role. Another thing is this time period specifically is when a lot of the conventions that we think of for novels, um, for instance, were just beginning to take shape. Mm -hmm. Um, The novel hadn't really come into its own at that time. And so they're kind of defining what's going to happen? And so in that sense, it might be more broad, again, acknowledging that I'm not a specialist outside of French literature or Francophone literature. But I think that it is very specific to France. And yet, I think that its reverberations can be seen, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in many other places and up through today.
0: So you've given me a really great opening, Tracy, to to kind of, I mean, this is terrible because as somebody who works on the 20th and 21st centuries, like seems so <laughs> opportunistic of me, but like <laughs> one of the most, but you started it because um, one of the yeah. most fascinating things to me about your book, which I really wasn't expecting when I picked it up, was how you, I won't say frame all of this in a, like a de- over determined way. Like, it's not like I felt like the book didn't have the book's engagement with um, the 18th century and the Enlightenment and the era that you're you're focused on and these works and these authors grounded in their moment. There's a separation there. It's not like that. That contemporary concerns or a preoccupation with the present that is our your your Tracy yours and my present um, uh-huh. is there at every turn in some kind of over determining way. But I I was really fascinated by the way that you open the book. Um, situating the book at the moment of its writing and I guess imminent publication, um, you know, came out in 2021 and that, and by all of the the way you set up the book in relationship to concerns about family, normative family, uh, various types of contemporary interrogations of that laws around in France and the U S mm-hmm. and elsewhere around what makes a family, um, who's permitted to to be a part of a family alternative arrangements having children not having children who gets to do that like all of these questions that are so on fire uh now in 2023 and were when the book came out and as yeah as I was reading just thinking about like you did on the I don't think you were on the bus when you were reading Voltaire but um (laughs) like you did reading Voltaire and thinking like this makes sense now I guess I want to take us into that place now. I've been ho- patient this whole time, you know, <laughs> waiting to, to ask you perhaps one of the most exciting questions for me, which is what does all of this mean? And what would you want readers, like how much, how much were contemporary concerns of your own political issues um, in the present, whether watching France, you know, living in the United States, all these things driving this project uh, in its earliest moments. And as you were finishing it, Um, And what would you want readers reading this in 2023, since that's where we are, um, to to take away and to bring into their discussions about family legislation, about alternative communities and arrangements, about queer families, about family abolition? Like, how do you see all Mm -hmm. of that? I know that's really huge, and we could probably talk about that for hours, (laughs) but anything you want to tell us about that? Because I think it's one of the gifts of this book, really.
1: Well, yeah, I think those questions were always there. These questions of what's going on in the present, in my present, they were always kind of guiding me in one way or another throughout writing this project. And I think that one of the things that I often hear or read when I'm listening to debates about, um, you know, healthcare for all individuals or um, rights for adoption or abortion rights, you know, whatever, whatever we're thinking of. Discussions are often framed as if these are brand new, as if these questions, you know, we just thought of them and we just started debating them. And, you know, we have to kind of start from scratch if we want to think about alternatives to how we're going to handle things. And one of the things that I really wanted to show with my book is that it's actually not new. And sometimes it's nice to, to look back and see that there have that people, I mean, sometimes it's kind of devastating because you think people were having these arguments and these problems in the 18th century and we're still having them today. But sometimes it's kind of comforting to, to see that, you know, people have been dealing with a lot of these issues and thinking through alternative alternatives to a lot of these things for a very long time, and one of the things that I talk about throughout the book are what I see as these utopian impulses. So I'm not arguing that these authors wrote utopian literature, but I do think there are these utopian impulses. Where, um, for instance, in that chapter on Crébillon, we see this mode of being that's really i i call i call it a mode of cruising. You know, that's kind of like family creation through cruising. Mm. And it's a very sort of, you know, we might think of it as a modern take on family. It's sort of you bump into these people who have an effect on your lives and then they become a part of you and they become a part of your lives and you don't really exist without them. And then you bump into these other people who have a different effect and they also may become part of your lives. And so you have these little nodes all around that kind of come together and they form in a moment and they can they can break apart but they can be really transformative and um, and I find that so so utopian, but also really important to think about really important to hang on to that that hope that that lies in those utopian formations and those utopian encounters. And you know, as I say in the conclusion of the book, ultimately, these were failed experiments, we'll say. They had these utopian impulses to think about, okay, well, we now we don't have this strict system of alliance. Maybe we can think about family in terms of like, we just live with who we want to live. We live with who we love. We don't need our relationships or our sexuality to be governed by the state, but we know that that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we know now the end to that story historically. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's really important to look back and to see how how they were thinking about these things at that time and how it might help us to think about these things now.
0: Yeah, I was really inspired by those connections, you know, from the outset of reading the book and it, it that preface is really great, <laughs> Tracy. I mean, the, Thank whole, you. Book, the whole book Thank is you. really fascinating but that <laughs> preface is really great because I do. I think that when we write things we write them for our fields or like the, you know, even smaller groups of people we're in conversations with in workshops and at conferences and those kinds of things. Like, of course we, there's the inside baseball of all of that, but then we want a broader readership. And I just think that preface and the way you come back around to it, uh, you know, in different ways that, that they're like implicit and more explicit, like these moments where, you know, the reader gets reminded whether you're doing it explicitly or not, that these things have longer term implications, how we think about en- enlightenment today, how we think about family, how those two things intersect, what kinship means in the 21st century, like all of these things that then make this book a sort of, I wanted to read it anyway, but like a must a must read in some <laughs> ways as a way of kind Thank of you. coming coming to terms with some of the questions that we argue about so intensely now. And, you know, some of the da- dangers that we're living through and some, you mm-hmm. know, the removal of rights and all of these things, you know, cause this book, I'm well, you would have finished it before Roe was overturned. Yeah. yeah um, I did. So, yeah. But I was thinking about that as I read it because everything that's, mm-hmm. you know, all these things that have happened since when, when I read it, I read it very much um, in the spirit of, you know, concerns about like migrants and, you know, the opening up of legislation. Mm-hmm. I I was there during that time too, <laughs> living through those yeah. Trump years and whatnot, but like, yeah, it, it, it still works, you know, and that's, that's sometimes a concern when we're making yeah. references to the present, just as we're finishing something about some, you know, historical period or, you know, historical literature, like that you're, that by the time the book comes out, other things will have happened. And yeah, yeah. I, you know, for, for better and for worse, like the book still is still relevant uh, in 2023, yeah. but in ways that you couldn't have, maybe you could have yeah. had, had worries about, but that you couldn't have necessarily anticipated. Right. So, so yeah, right. it's it's really fascinating in that regard. I have one last Thank question you. for you because I cannot talk to you all day, even though I, <laughs> I like to which is you know yeah. and I and I I've been asking this and saying to people like in the gentlest possible way I want to ask you what you're working on now and just knowing that we've had years of insanity uh, especially f- yes. for people who are dealing with all <laughs> kinds of family things, including like elder care, child care, you know, yeah. dealing with loneliness and single life, like all of these things. So, like, <laughs> understanding all of that as a context for what wherever your work is at, what do you want to tell us about future projects, things you're working on?
1: Well, um, actually, it's funny because uh, my current project is something that I've been working on essentially since grad school. Um, And I didn't think about that until I was just, you know, trying to think through some things before this interview. And um, I don't know, the best piece of advice that I got when I finished, when I defended my PhD, and maybe the best piece of advice I can give to people who are just now defending their PhD, their dissertations, is to take a year and not think about your dissertation at all. Mm. Do something else, mm. you know, just do something else. Because if you if you do want to go on to be an academic, if you do want to, it to become a book, you need some distance from it. Mm. So I did take that seriously. And I thought, well, you know, I gave this talk a while back that I really want to go back to and develop into an article. And that eventually became this article that I published on blindness, Diderot and blindness and prosthetics. And that question of disability and care had always kind of been in the back of my mind when I was working on this other project, because you talk about families, you talk about kinship, you talk about intimacy and you can't help, but think about care and how we care for each other. Mm. And so that article kind of really mixed with sort of those thoughts that I had been having really led to the project that I'm working on right now, which is a book that is for now called careful science. And I am, Again, looking at the legacies of the Enlightenment, this time the legacies of Enlightenment science, uh, and how that defined medicine and ability uh, as as we see it today. And so, I'm going back to caretakers and thinking instead. If we looked instead of to the doctors and physicians and scientists, what if we looked to the caretakers? Whether that's in France, whether that's in the French colonies. and see what those practices of care look like and how that might help us to think differently about human ability and about care.
0: Well, that sounds fantastic i love that (laughs) um and i can't wait to hear more about it wow
1: that's and you can see now too why how much i love megan robert's work
0: (laughs) um yes shout out to megan um yeah yeah and obvious and the other thing i mean which is so obvious but like after the few years that we've been living in this ongoing pandemic um you know talking about care like Sounds like another um, crossover past-present hit, Tracy, (laughs) Um, because I know a lot of people are thinking about these questions in all sorts of really important, difficult, meaningful ways right now. And so, yeah, um, we need your book. (laughs) Um, Tracy, I want to thank you so much for writing this book and for speaking with (laughs) me about it.
1: Thank you so much for having me on this show and um, for taking the time to, to talk to me about my book. It's been a pleasure.